This is the last week of what we're calling True and Better. And during this True and Better series, we've been looking at the lives of some people in the Old Testament who were living by faith. They were living from the truth that God would deliver on his promises without even knowing much detail about how that would work itself out, how God would work through that faith. That's part of living by faith, living from the truth, living from the truth that God will deliver on his promises without knowing much detail about how he is going to work that out until you've taken a step or two in the direction of faith where he leads. Now, if you think about this for a second, you'll notice a pattern that we've been talking about with these people, a pattern that compared to us, these Old Testament followers of God were taking a pretty big risk in their lives. They didn't have the scriptures like we do. They didn't know that God's promises would be fulfilled in Christ as Messiah. For many of these Old Testament believers, they were called to a specific task, to a, to a kind of calling with little in the way of community support of those who have gone before and done that same road. The, the stories were things they'd heard but not written down. Adam and Eve, for example, were the first to have faith. No historical precedent for that. Job lost everything and still had faith in God, knowing he could lose it all again. Abraham left his homeland and his people and his way of life to go uh, somewhere out there that God would show him along the way. Moses tried to get out of being a leader many times. And today Esther risked her very life. The truth of today and about these people in the Old Testament and throughout Scripture is that following God in faith involves risk. Following God in faith involves some risk. And the Bible tells the story of the risks these various men and women took in order for their lives to point to Jesus. series of disconnected stories. It is a single narrative in which every story, every character points beyond itself to one who is greater. The story of Adam and Eve is not just about the first man and woman. There was a true and better Adam who passed the test in the garden and whose obedience is ascribed to us. There is a true and better Abel who, though innocently slain, has blood that cries out not for our condemnation, but for our acquittal. There is a true and better Abraham who answered the call of God to leave all the comfortable and familiar and go out into the void to create a new people of God. There is a true and better Isaac the son of laughter, of grace, who was not just offered up by his father on the mount, but was truly sacrificed for us all. There is a true and better Jacob, who wrestled and took the blow of justice we deserve. So we, like Jacob, only receive the wounds of grace that wake us up and discipline us. There is a true and better Joseph, 
who at the right hand of the king forgives those who betrayed and sold him and uses his new power to save them. There is a true and better Moses who stands in the gap between the people and the Lord and who mediates a new covenant. There is a true and better rock of Moses who struck with the rod of God's justice now gives us water in the desert. There is a true and better Job, the truly innocent sufferer who then intercedes for and saves his foolish friends. There is a true and better David, whose victory becomes his people's victory, though they never lifted a stone to accomplish it themselves. There is a true and better Esther, who didn't just risk losing an earthly palace, but lost the ultimate heavenly one, who didn't just risk his life, but gave his life to save his people. There is a true and better Jonah, who was cast out into the storm so that we could be brought in. There is a true and better Passover land, innocent, perfect, helpless, slain so the angel of death will pass over us. He's the true temple, the true prophet, the true priest, the true king, the true sacrifice, the true land, the true light, and the true bread. The Bible is not a series of disconnected stories. It is a single narrative that points to one person, Jesus. Today we're focusing on something <clears throat> that anyone who has ever done anything significant knows and that all those people mentioned in that video knew and it's something we need to understand. In fact, it's something we need to embody. It's the truth that if you want to participate in what God is doing, if you want to participate in what God is doing, you have to risk. If you want to participate in what God is doing, you have to take some risks. The hero of today's story, Esther, understood that. She understood it well. Esther was keenly aware that if you want to be a part of what God is doing in the world, then you have to take some risks. Esther's, Esther's story takes place in ancient Persia. Persia at the time was the largest power geographically in the ancient world. The scope of its empire was even bigger than Rome at its height, and it is still recognized today as one of the greatest empires and powers the world has ever known. This is a map of Persia at its height in terms of geography. And today's story takes place in Susa, one of Persia's four capital cities. It's called the Citadel, one of the citadels in the text. Today it's called Shush, and it's right about there in the middle of the picture there in southwestern um, Iran today. This would be, be about where it was located. Now the story of the book of Esther takes place over the course of 10 years, and it starts and it ends with a feast. It starts with an earthly king who throws a feast to celebrate his own kingdom. But by the end of the story, God has him throwing a feast that celebrates God's kingdom. It's, a, it's an amazing turn of events that takes us from that first feast to that later feast. So we begin the story with an earthly king. His name was King Ahasuerus. M many of you may have known him as King Xerxes in some versions. That's the sort of Greek name for him. King Ahasuerus at the time was the greatest king in the world. 
Riches beyond imagination, power and control with his very word, and, and a great army to enforce whatever he commanded. But at this first feast in the story, his queen, Queen Vashti, who was apparently a quite beautiful and, and very self-assured woman, she refused the king's command to come and display her beauty to all at the feast. Well, as you can imagine, this did not sit well with King Ahasuerus. I mean, you don't, just, you don't just refuse to do what the king commands, even if you were the queen. So she was, uh, she was deposed, shall we say, and the king decided to give her position as queen to someone else. So they, they hold this year-long beauty contest to find the most worthy woman in the land. Think sort of Persian idol or uh, Persia's Got Talent. Uh, and that's, that's where we meet Esther, who risked everything to participate in the work that God was doing. Now Esther, Esther was an orphan and a Jew. We don't know how her parents died, but her uncle Mordecai, as we're told in chapter 2, took her as his own daughter. And he raised her in the tradition of their people, the Jews. And Esther shared her uncle Mordecai's strong faith in God. And even though God isn't mentioned by name in the entire book of Esther, it's clear in reading through the story, it becomes obvious throughout the story who the real hero of this story is. So this Esther, who was described as lovely to look at, she sort of emerges as a front runner in this beauty contest to become a queen. And the Bible tells us that Esther was winning favor in the eyes of all who saw her. And then it says this, at the end of chapter 2. At the end of chapter 2, verse 17, it says this, The king loved Esther more than all the women, and she won grace and favor in his sight more than all the virgins. Then it says this, So that he set the royal crown on her head and made her queen instead of Vashti. Esther was now queen of Persia. King Ahasuerus threw a great feast for her. The Bible calls it Esther's feast. And all of the Persian kingdom celebrated. This Jewish orphan girl has suddenly risen to become queen of the world's greatest power, which means that God was up to something big here. God was up to something big. But meanwhile, as all this was going on for Esther, there was a man named Haman, an evil man named Amon, uh, Haman who was introduced to us as Haman the Agagite. In Hebrew narrative, <clears throat> the way someone is introduced in a story is the key to understanding that person's role in the story. In Esther 2.5, for example, Mordecai is introduced to us as a Jew who is descended from King Saul. Here at the beginning of chapter 3, Haman is introduced to us as an Agagite, which meant he was a mortal enemy of the Jews because of an ancient war between his ancestors, the Amalekites, and Mordecai's ancestors, King Saul. So there was some history of bad blood here between Haman and Mordecai. And so now we have a bad guy in the story. The bad guy, Haman the Agagite. And this is why 
Once a year at the Feast of Purim, when the Jews read or even act out the book of Esther, every single time Haman's name is mentioned, all of the children listening go, boo, and they drown out his name because he's the bad guy. And every time Mordecai's name is mentioned, they all yell, yay, because he's one of the heroes of the story who represents the work that God was doing in the book of Esther. So you can see where this is headed. So to set the tone here, as Esther was rising from obscurity to become queen of Persia, Haman the Agagite boo, had become the king's right-hand man. And, and, and Haman uses his new found political power to carry out his hatred for Mordecai, and he builds a gallows with which to hang Mordecai. And he schemed to wipe out all of the Jews from the kingdom, throughout the whole kingdom. And get this, he even convinced the king to sanction it without the king knowing that it was his queen's very people, the Jews. Haman's a pretty crafty dude. Here's what it says in Esther 3.10. And these are words which would have been chilling to any Jew reading this story. Chapter 3, verse 10, it says, So the king took his signet ring from his hand, and he gave it to Haman the Agagite, which is not good. Somehow the king didn't even know that this edict was specific to the Jews, his own queen's people. And so the story has taken quite a turn here. If somebody doesn't do something, this is the situation we're in here at this point in the story. If someone doesn't do something, the people of God would be in serious trouble. And so Uncle Mordecai gets word to Esther to that effect that their people there are in danger. And this is where we pick up the story. In Esther 4, Verses 10 through 17. It says this, verse 10. Then Esther spoke to Hathak. Hathak was a eunuch who was a personal assistant to Queen Esther. It says she commanded him to go to Mordecai and to say, verse 11, all the king's servants and the people of the king's provinces know that if any man or woman goes to the king inside the inner court without being called, there is but one law to be put to death, except the one to whom the king holds out the golden scepter so that he may live. But as for me, I have not been called to come in to the king these 30 days. Uh, today this might be like trying to barge into the Oval Office to have an unannounced audience with the president. Uh, not only would you not make it anywhere close to the Oval Office, but you wouldn't make it past the front gates. And even if you did make it past the front gates, the most highly trained snipers in the world who are stationed all over the premises at the White House would be able to pick you off in a heartbeat. You wouldn't make it anywhere close to the Oval Office. It's sort of like that. You don't just, you don't just walk into the inner court of the king without being called by him, even if you were the queen. So Esther had Hathak and her assistants communicate this to Mordecai, communicate the weight of what he was asking her to do to go into the king. And this is what it says, verse 12. They told Mordecai what Esther had said. Then Mordecai told them to reply to Esther. Do, you not, do not think to yourself that in the king's palace you will escape any more than all the other Jews. Mordecai said, 
Being queen doesn't exempt you, Esther. Don't be naive. And when he says this, one of the two key verses in the whole book and one of the most amazing truths in all of Scripture is what he says next. Profound stuff, verse 14. He says, for if you keep silent at this time. He's saying, Esther, if you choose to play it safe, if you refuse to risk for your people who are in grave danger, if you keep silent at this time, he says, relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place. But you and your father's house will perish. And who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. I hope you get a sense of the gravity of the situation here. God has brought this orphan girl out of obscurity to a place of great power. All the while, the evil one plotting through Haman to destroy God's people. It's clearly good against evil. And it's come to the point of crisis here, that critical moment when it's put up or shut up. It's do or die because the stakes are high. And then here's Mordecai, who clearly has a passion for the things of God more than anything else. And he says, this isn't about you, Esther. This is about something way bigger than your life. This is about the opportunity to participate in God's work to redeem his people. Esther, God, God puts you here for his purposes, and it's time to take the risk. So verse 15 Apparently it got through, and Esther told them to reply to Mordecai, verse 16. Go, gather all the Jews to be found in Susa, and hold a fast on my behalf. And do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my young women will also fast as you do. She's calling the Jews together to prayer. And then she says these famous words, another key passage in Esther. She says, then I will go to the king, though it is against the law, and if I perish, I perish. So Mordecai then went away and did everything as Esther had ordered him. And, lo and long story short, <laughs> Esther tells the king about Haman. She does not perish. The Jews are saved. And Haman is hanged on the very gallows he had built for Mordecai. Now I want to ask you a question. Who is the hero of this story? Is it Esther who faithfully submitted to the needs of others and risked her very life? Is it Mordecai who risked not bowing to evil Haman and who stood up for the needs of God's people? Or is it the unnamed but not silent character in the background who is using his people to participate in the very work he is doing to save them? Esther said, if I perish, I perish. With those famous words, 
Esther risked losing her position and her life in order to participate in what God was doing because she counted God's work as more worthy than her very life. We could use a lot more Esther's. When Jesus faithfully carried out his work, when he faithfully carried out his father's work, he did likewise. He counted God's glory as more important than his very life. Christ went to the cross well aware of the stakes involved. And, and, and friends, the life of Christ, don't miss this, the life of Christ repeats itself in every one of his children. Revelation 3.21 says, and this is Jesus speaking. He says, the one who conquers, that's not Jesus, that's believers, that's us. The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. In Acts 20.24, super cool verse. Just like Esther, like Mordecai, like we're meant to do, Paul's life reflected this truth of Christ's sacrifice, how it's replicated in his children. Acts 20, 24, it says, But I do not account my life of any value, nor as precious to myself, if only I may finish my course. And the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus received it from the Lord Jesus because it's the same ministry to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. The question for you today is this. What is the influence you have today that God has given you that was meant for his purposes? What is the influence you have today that God has given you that was meant for his purposes? Friends, following God in faith in a way that bears fruit for his kingdom requires risk. You may have to risk embarrassment. You may have to risk being misunderstood. You may have to risk being disliked because of a hard conversation you know you have to have that you're trying to avoid. You may even have to risk money you're holding on to as security. Whatever it is, there is something you need to risk in order to participate more fully in what God is doing in the world, redeeming people to himself. But let me tell you what most people do. They stop taking risks. Flat out. We become people who stop taking risks for the gospel. Because we don't like taking risks in our everyday life. You know how this works, every one of you. We get a few years on us, we have a steady job, we buy a house, we fill it with a spouse and kids and responsibilities. And then when we experience some of the tragedy of living in a fallen world where things break or they don't work or they even die, then we stop taking risks because we believe the lie that they break or they don't work or they die because we haven't been safe enough. Lie. 
I mean, obviously, you're unsafe if you're experiencing these things. If you just managed your world better, you wouldn't experience that. Lie. Lie. The lie many believe is that comfort, control, and safety can make life enjoyable. Friends, safety doesn't cover sin. Only perfect sacrifice does. Not yours and not mine. Safety may even obscure you. Safety may even obscure you from seeing the work God is doing. For example... I had two friends from childhood, <clears throat> from school and from church, uh, one of whom died because he uh, was hiking and he slipped on some moss, just a little bit, of, just a little patch of moss, and he fell off the cliff. <clears throat> I had another friend who died uh, from this really obscure heart condition uh, that was set in motion because he loved to scuba dive. <laughs> Guess what two outdoor activities I don't like to participate in? <clears throat> but do you know what you miss when you live life like that? You miss the beautiful vistas that speak to the beauty of a majestic God. You don't see the wonder of a creator God who made all sorts of amazing animals that can breathe in water. You miss out on what God has done and is doing. It's like going through life with your spiritual eyes closed. And let me tell you something that seems contrary to how we live, <laughs> but the truth is that the only way to do life meaningfully, the only way to do life meaningfully in a way that participates in the work that God is doing is to faithfully risk. That's what faith looks like. Friends, the stakes are the glory of God being made known. The stakes are the work of God being acknowledged. And if you don't participate, it's not that God's glory and work won't be made known, because they will. You can bank on that. God will make sure that, like Mordecai said to, East, to Esther, if it's not you, relief and deliverance will rise from another place. And I can promise you, that other person is going to enjoy life, is going to enjoy the ride, is going to enjoy being used by God far more than those who refuse to risk. <clears throat> if you want to see the work of God in the world, if you want to know what it looks like to watch God transform people, if you want to participate in the work that God is already doing, then risk something. Not because I'm asking you, but because God's the one who says relief and deliverance will rise from somewhere. He wants you to be a part of that. He wants each one of us to be a part of that. The question is, what is the influence you have today that God has given you that was meant for his purposes and for your joy? <clears throat> 